A New Testament reading for today comes uh, from the book of Luke, the Gospel of Luke, uh, chapter 11. You'll find this on page 10 uh, in your worship folder bulletin. I don't know what we're calling this thing, um, but it, it, it's there. And so um, we'll figure out what we're going to call it. Chapter 11, verses 1 through 13. Hear the word of the Lord. Now Jesus was praying in a certain place. And when he finished, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray, as John taught his disciples. And he said to them, when you pray, say, Father, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, give us each day our daily bread, and forgive us our sins, for we ourselves forgive everyone who is indebted to us, and lead us not into temptation. And he said to them, Which of you who has a friend will go to him at midnight and say to him, Friend, lend me three loaves, for a friend of mine has arrived on a journey and have nothing to set before him. And he will answer from within, Do not bother me. The door is now shut, and my children are in bed with me. I cannot get up and give you anything. I tell you, though he will not get up, and give him anything because he is his friend. Yet, because of his impotence, he will rise and give him whatever he needs. And I tell you, ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks, receives. And the one who seeks, finds. And to the one who knocks, it will be opened. What father among you, if his son asks for a fish, will instead of a fish give him a serpent? Or if he asks for an egg, will give him a scorpion? If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our Lord stands forever. Long time ago, in a galaxy far, far away, um, my wife and I dated. Um, we didn't just arrive here married. Um, and, and, and you know, I mean, there's certain sort of, you know, milestones along the way in terms of your um, of, of progress in, in dating. Um, and you know things have gotten serious when a person visits around the holidays, okay? Once you bring that person, not just to your immediate family, okay? we got aunts, uncles, cousins, all these other people who this person is meeting. And that, that, that's serious, okay? That, that, that means business. And, and so you've got this person, they're on display, and, and so Meredith came and, and she had done Christmas with us, okay? Um, and, you know, every family, we have certain distinctive aspects of how they do the holidays. Uh, and, and in my family, one of the things that, that perplexed my wife was gift-giving. How do we give gifts? Because you see, in the Jones family, one of the things, yeah, it perplexed her, we don't wait until Christmas Day to do the gifts. We knock that out early. We do that on Christmas Eve. And so Meredith asked me the question, okay, why do y'all do it on Christmas Eve as opposed to to Christmas Day? Inquiring minds want to know. And I just was like, I I don't know, it's just just what we do. Um, which was not enough for her. 
So she went fishing and approached my mother about the subject. Like, why do y'all do the, the presents on Christmas Eve as opposed to Christmas morning? My mother just, just smiled. She said very matter-of-factly, because Justin couldn't stand it. <laughs> because Justin nagged us incessantly for weeks and days about when are we going to open presents? When are we going to open presents? When are we going to open presents? And they grew so tired of listening to my pleas to open presents that they just caved in. And, and, and basically, they started opening them on Christmas Eve, essentially just to shut me up. Which all, that was news to me. I had no idea at the time that that was the reason why they were doing it. Christmas Eve was the earliest possible moment that my parents could justify allowing me to open my presents. And so, we did it then. Now, I was, you know, sort of dreading, okay, we've got kids, and what's, what's it going to look like for me? But it hasn't been near, they were pretty, uh, they were excited, but not, not nearly what I was, supposedly. The, the title of our sermon today is Asking with Audacity. First part of Luke chapter 11, the disciples have asked Jesus, teach us to pray. Teach us how to pray. Which, which in some respect should be an encouragement to any of us who struggle with prayer. If we're honest, many of us do. The disciples themselves struggled with prayer. They didn't know what they were doing. And so Jesus responds by offering a prayer very similar to to what's often referred to as the Lord's Prayer, where we see certain themes that should be in our prayer life, giving God praise, praying for his kingdom to be realized here on earth, and his will would be done, thanking him for his good gifts and and asking for, for his provision and for his forgiveness. But then Jesus goes beyond what? We should be praying for, and he presents a parable, the parable that we just read, the parable of the the neighbor at midnight. And in this parable, Jesus wants to show us at least three aspects of prayer for those of us who struggle with prayer. These three aspects being the manner in which we should pray, second, the one to whom we're praying, and finally, what we receive in prayer. And those are going to be our three points for the day. Um, the, the manner in which we should pray, the, the one to whom we are praying, and finally, what we receive in prayer. We'll begin with the manner in which we're to pray. This parable sounds eerily similar to me harassing my parents for Christmas presents, okay? What we have is a man who, who in the middle of the night, wakes up his neighbor to tell him that he has no food in his house and he needs some bread for his guest. His guest has come in, middle of the night, and I need three loaves and I need it bad. Which, I mean, of course that sounds ridiculous to us, right? I mean, surely this can wait till till morning. But hospitality was huge in this country. I mean, we're Southerners. We think we got this Southern hospitality thing down. We got nothing on these people. All right, And so if you had a guest in your home, it was your responsibility to provide for them. And so not having food in your house would have been a huge embarrassment. And so to, to, to save face with his guest, this man starts beating down his neighbor's door. I want you to picture this for a moment. This is midnight in the first century. No electricity. It's dark. And everyone's been asleep for hours, and their homes weren't necessarily like our homes, okay? We're talking about a one-room house. Everyone's in the same room. And when he says, my children are in bed with me, we should take that literally. One bed. Like, 
the Waltons or something, you know, Knight, Jim Bob, or John, whatever. I don't, I don't watch the Waltons. But, but you get the picture. That's the picture going on here. And so the grumpy neighbor responds, leave me alone. Do not bother me. My kids are asleep. My door is shut. I'm not getting up. But the man won't, won't let it go. He keeps persisting. He keeps knocking. He keeps begging for bread. And what eventually happens is the neighbor gets out of bed and gives the man what he wants. Not because the man was, the text says it, not because the man is his friend, not because the man had any sympathy for him in this predicament. It was because the guy was so obnoxious that the neighbor satisfied him so he could go back to sleep. Because of his rudeness, because of his audacity, his gall, his nerve, his, his shamelessness. Our translation uses the word impotence because of this man's sheer defiance of what is appropriate. The neighbor caved and the man got what he wanted. Here's what makes our parable interesting, though. The man who practiced this sort of behavior, according to Jesus, this is the model of how we're supposed to approach God. This completely inappropriate behavior, Jesus says, this is the way you ought to pray. Look at verse 9. Take a look at verse 9. And I tell you, ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, knock, knock. And the door shall be opened unto you. Ask, seek, knock. And to be clear, Jesus is not just offering a suggestion that we should, you know, do that once and, and, and then see what happens, okay? You know, ask once, see if it happens. Seek that one time and, and, and hope it works out. Knock once and, you know, if somebody comes to the door, well, it's fine, but if they don't, well, at least you tried. The, the verb... The verbs imply continuous action. Ask repeatedly. Seek continually. Knock persistently over and over and over again. Keep doing it. To plead with God so that we get those things that we're after. We saw that in our Old Testament reading just a moment ago. Abraham pleading with God over the fate of Sodom and Gomorrah. What if there's 50 righteous? What about 45? 40? He gets them down to 10. And in verse, uh, and then we're told, verse 10, if we do so, if we ask repeatedly, if we seek continually, if we knock persistently, then our prayers will be answered. Now, for some of us, that might be kind of hard to imagine approaching God that way, right? I mean, you know, there seems to be no respect for his holiness. And also, this, this notion of, like, coming again and again and again and again, I mean, I mean, are we supposed to kind of, like, take no for an answer? Are we supposed to, like, submit to his will? We might even try to argue, you know, God, God knows my heart. And, and, and so he knows. He knows what I need. And he's got a plan. And so, you know, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to put that out there for you, God, and you do with that what you will. God's heard it. it. That should be enough that one time. But this passage points us to the notion that that God wants us to to plead with him. He wants us to beg him. Why? Why would God like for us to beg? Let's say this morning, um, God forbid, during the middle of this sermon, uh, the wonderful ladies who cook the breakfast, uh, hospitality folk, they, 
I messed up. And they left the oven on. And all of a sudden now, there's kind of a, there's kind of a blaze going on, you know, in the middle of the building. The building is on fire. I would hope that, that as great as this sermon may be, if somebody noticed that the building was on fire, they would come in here and, the, and they wouldn't do this. They, excuse me. The building's on fire. Do it, whatever. Do with that what you will. My hope would be, even though this is a good sermon, guys, a game here. Um, run, get out, fire. Okay, I mean, I can handle it. But there, the, the situation calls for a passionate response, a response that isn't a, concerned about what is appropriate. And here's the thing our situation before God should evoke the same type of response. The reason that God wants us to plead with him is because our situation demands it. There's times in our life where we feel this, right? I'm in the middle of a crisis or an illness or or a tragedy. I mean, we feel this in a really profound way. And so we turn to God. We turn to him in this passionate, persistent prayer. But if I'm honest, I don't pray this way all the time pleading for those things that I wish God would accomplish. And I have a sneaking suspicion that for most of us, our prayer life lacks this kind of passion, this kind of fervor, this kind of raw intensity of this man beating on his neighbor's door. But what Jesus is telling us, both in in giving us the Lord's Prayer, but also in this man begging for bread, is that human beings, for us, there is not a single moment of any day where you and I are not in a constant place of need. That we are dependent creatures. I hear the word creature, I think like science fiction, like Swamp Thing or something. You know, creature. But the word creature comes from the word create. Creation. Which is what we are. Created beings who are necessarily dependent upon the one who created us. It is the nature of human existence to be dependent, to be needy. We're not autonomous. We're not self-sufficient. We are not people who have nearly as much control over our lives as we might be tempted to think. We are people who are broken by the fall. We are people who are capable of destroying our lives in a matter of seconds. We realize that, right? That we're all capable of anything. We're people who constantly are in need of rescue, hope, wisdom, and intervention. And have you ever heard somebody say this, this whole deal that, you know, God won't give you more than you can handle? Go like this. You've you heard this before? God won't, God won't give you more than you can handle. Really? Because I think he does that all the time. That's not in the Bible. Okay, it's, it's, it does say that you know, he won't let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. But as far as like giving you more than you can handle, he does that all the time. In fact, that's what life is. Being in over our heads, lacking, being in need like this man begging for bread. The question is, do we believe that about ourselves? We may say we do. We can confess the Apostles' Creed. I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, 
But as far as what I'm really believing about myself and my nature of my existence and who God is and all that kind of stuff, there's a really good way to tell what I'm actually believing. It's our prayer life. It shows up in how we pray or whether we pray. Because if I'm not communicating with the one on whom I am dependent, how dependent do I really think I am? Or if my prayers don't convey desperation, if they're simply sort of like this rhetorically eloquent, you know, sophisticated, lots of Old Testament obscure references, but but it doesn't seem like it's coming from the heart. If there's no heart in them, then... What, is, what are we really even doing? To be clear, I'm not against form prayer. I'm not against obscure Old Testament references. Um, but what is God after? He's after genuine prayer, a, a one that, that gets the sense of, of real need, real desperation. And that can be with some of the great prayers that we appeal to in our liturgy. It can be with the prayer, help me. It's a great prayer. Because it comes from a place of real need and desperation. And Jesus wants us to pray like this man because he wants us to recognize just how needy we are. But not only that, he wants us to beg him because he is the only one who can satisfy those needs. Brings us to our second point for the day. The one to whom we are praying. So if the guy that that, that needs bread represents us, it would only follow that the, that the grumpy neighbor in bed must represent God. And for many of us, this image is not all that far off from the way we actually perceive God. A God who's sort of generally annoyed with us, disappointed with us, constantly causing problems. He's kind of pestering us, and so he begrudgingly gets out of bed to, to help us after we harass him enough. And And, and if that's the way we think about God, prayer will almost be like a sign of weakness, right? Of having to admit to God, hey, messed up again, need your help again, bail me out. Jesus is not telling us this parable to reinforce that view of God. That's not why Jesus is comparing God to the neighbor. So what then is Jesus doing? What does God have to do with a grumpy neighbor who won't get out of bed until we pester him. Very little. And that's the point. It's a point Jesus makes in, in verse 13. If you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? How much more? What Jesus is doing is showing the character of God by means of contrast, by arguing from least to greater. Of course, of course a grumpy neighbor will get out of bed and assist you if you if you bug him to death. And if that's true, if he's willing to help, then how much more would a gracious God do likewise? But notice in verse 13 how God is described. Take a look at verse 13. No longer is Jesus talking about a neighbor or a friend. Now he begins to use the term father. And this makes all the difference in the world as far as our prayer lives are concerned. The fact that God is our Father. If you're a believer, 
If you've looked to Christ in faith and repentance based on what Christ accomplished for you, then you are not just justified, okay? Justified, you know, like sort of think courtroom, legal, forgiven, declared innocent, yes, yes. But, but you're adopted into his family. You're a child of God. John 1, to all who received him, to believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, children born not of natural descent, nor of a human decision, nor a husband's will, but born of God. And if you're a child of God, what that means then is that God is your father. 1 John 3, 1, how great is the love the father has lavished on us that we should be called children of God. And so the reason that Jesus encourages us to come to God in prayer with such audacity, with such persistence, begging and pleading before him, is because God is not simply some unfeeling deity. He's not simply a judge. He's not a grumpy neighbor. He's our father, which means that we have access to him as a child does with his or her parent. And you parents in the room should know exactly what this means. If you are a parent, your children can do things that no one else can do. Not because they're rude, or, but because they're yours. Say your child drops by your office, as opposed to just like an employee dropping by your office, okay? Employee's going to like make an appointment and come in. They're going to talk about their business. And, you know, it's like, oh, well, you might, you know, chew the fat have a little, you know, friendly banter, but you got to go now. The, the child acts completely different. They're going to come by without an appointment. They're, they're going to knock as if it's like, you know, an announcement as opposed to gaining permission. And they're just going to dive into conversation. They're just going to talk about whatever they want to. And they're going to do this not necessarily because they're rude or they have no shame. They're going to do it because they're yours. They're your children. They have special status, and therefore they have special access. Things that would be completely inappropriate for anyone else to do are appropriate for your kids. So certainly, yes, God is holy. He is holy, holy, holy. And he is worthy of our reverence and respect. Do not hear me saying otherwise, but this must not be forgotten. God's holiness should not be used to deny who God is as our Father and what that means for us in terms of our access. The same God who is all-powerful, all-knowing, who created the heavens and the earth, who governs all of creation by his mighty will, is your daddy. He's your Father. And he grants us access to him by the merits of his Son. I think one of the reasons our prayer lives can become so uninspired or trite or even burdensome is because too often our prayer lives look like, you know, employees praying to a boss instead of children praying to a father. When we can have good theology, know our Bibles, we believe in all this Jesus stuff, but at the end of the day, our relationship with God is a functional relationship based on our performance. I do this for God, and, and so God does this for me. And with none of us ever really holding up our end of the bargain on that one, in the back of our minds, or, or maybe even at the front of our minds, we, we think God's mad at us. 
He's annoyed at us. He's frustrated with us. We think we're, we're, we're bothering him. We don't believe he actually likes us, that he enjoys us, that, that we can hear the words he said to Jesus applying to us, this is my son with whom I am well pleased. And so we don't pray. Because why would you pray to somebody who's constantly mad at you, who's constantly annoyed by you? And Jesus tells this parable because he knows that so often, functionally speaking, even his people see God that way. And so we miss out. We miss out on the experience of what God longs to give us. And so he gives us a different picture of who God is. And this brings us to our last point, what the the Father gives us in prayer. We're told to ask repeatedly, to, to seek continually, to knock persistently. And we're told to do that so that because God is our Father, we do that because he's our Father. And now we're told what the Father gives us. Check out verse 11 and 12. Jesus describes the gifts of the Father this way. Which of you fathers, if your son asks for a fish, will give him a snake instead? Or asks for an egg, will give him a scorpion? In other words, if your son asks for something that would be beneficial to him, something like food, how many of you would give your child something potentially dangerous, something that wouldn't be good for them? Of course, the answer to that question is no one. I mean, you long to give your kids good gifts, those things that will nourish them and, and strengthen them and, and be beneficial for them. So once again, we get back to that how much more line of reading, reasoning that we saw before. If you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the Father in heaven give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? If we, as broken, sinful people, parents, trying their best, but we're messed up ourselves, if we seek what's best for our children, how much more will a perfect father... A father who knows all, sees all, can provide all, do exactly what is best for his children. How much more? Some of us struggle with prayer immensely. And one of the common, most common explanations that you hear is, you know, I've tried it and it didn't work. I didn't get what I wanted. And there's this feeling that, you know, because God didn't provide for me what I asked him for or, or, or didn't answer my prayer the way I wanted, you know, why pray? Why bother? God, let me win Powerball. I need that $500 million. Um, and then some joker down in Florida gets it. And, you know, all God's people that play the lotto say they're crushed. They're, they're, they're devastated. Um, kidding. Um, This passage does, though, give us a great deal of insight on the subject of of what Garth Brooks once referred to as unanswered prayers. Um, God, our Father, is the giver of good gifts and will not always grant to us what we want because what we want is not always good for us. Playing off our passage um, today, Tim Keller puts it this way. If you're a Christian and you have asked for something and God hasn't given it to you, What you've asked for is a scorpion. This is a good thing for the believer. Not only do we have the freedom to to plead our case, to plead, to say, here's what I want, God. We get the freedom to do that. We also have a God that won't always give it to us. Because he knows what's best. His gifts are good. We don't always ask for what's best. 
because our perception is limited, our minds are distracted, our motives are tainted. So much so that even in our circumstances where where, where what, what, what God wants from me appears obvious, we still don't know what's best. Paul describes this situation in Romans chapter 8. He says, the Spirit helps us in weakness. We do not know what we ought to pray for, but the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. In other words, when we pray, when we tell God what we want, we have an intercessor. And our prayers, broken as they may be, are then cleaned up and given to the Father. God responds not by necessarily giving us what we, we, we ask for, but what we need. John Calvin put it this way. God does not answer our prayers as we pray them, but as we would pray them if we were wiser. So here's the caveat for the, you know, the, the name it and claim it, folks. Um, God only gives us what's best. And, and God is far more concerned with our holiness than what we, we think will make us happy. But here's the thing. Not all prayers are, are Powerball prayers, okay? Not all prayers are God make my life go the way I think it should prayers. Which again, God hears those. He hears those prayers. In his goodness, he answers them. But I suspect that there are people in this room who are praying for all sorts of things. Loved ones to be physically or emotionally healed. For marriages to be saved, for friends and family to be converted, for employment to be provided, for cultural renewal in our nation, for wars to end, for God's intervention to alleviate pain and suffering. And despite our prayers, nothing seems to have changed, or at least not yet. And so we become cynical. We begin to doubt. We wonder, why why pray? Why pray? One of the more challenging things that I find in Scripture, particularly in the book of Acts, is how often you find God's people praying, not necessarily for their circumstances to change. I mean, certainly you find that. Don't, Don't get me wrong. But so often the prayers of God's people offered in the midst of, of pain and uncertainty and chaos and confusion and injustice, the prayers they're praying are prayers for endurance. God, give us faith. God, give us comfort in the midst of the circumstances. God, accomplish your purposes in the midst of this. Which, of course, is not what I want not what I want. I want my circumstances to change. I want the world around me to change. And what God very well, we want, very well may want is for me to change. For me to become a person who can trust him, even in the midst of uncertainty and pain and chaos and confusion that is inevitably part of living in a broken world. Which is why in our text, Jesus makes the move to the topic of the Holy Spirit. Verse 13. We're almost done here. How much more will your Father in heaven give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? 
Which on the surface seems kind of strange, right? I mean, we're encouraged to ask and seek and knock. We see God described as a father. He loves to give good gifts. And then Jesus starts talking about the Holy Spirit. Seems off topic. Like, it's like, thanks, but that's not really what I was asking for. Um, but if God is not simply about changing circumstances, but changing me, changing us, then what do I need more than anything else but the Holy Spirit? Who, to be clear, is God. What we need more than anything in this life, anything else, is God. The one who made us. The one who we are created for. The one who gives comfort in the midst of pain. The one who gives wisdom in the midst of confusion. The one who gives hope in the midst of despair. The one who gives perspective in the midst of doubt. The one who gives light in the midst of darkness. And even gives life in the midst of death. The gift that God gives us in the midst of prayer is Him. And by having Him, by having Emmanuel, God with us, we're able to endure able to trust him and to live in light of this reality. So my prayer for us, and we're starting 2017, my prayer for us is that we would be a people of prayer, that we would be desperate for God, for his intervention in our lives, which he does, but also for his presence, which he gives abundantly to those who ask, who seek, and who knock. Let us pray. Our Father, we we ask for your help. We desperately need your help. There is a part of us that wants to be self-sufficient, that wants to show you what all we're capable of, and in doing so, we deny who you are and what you've done and what you offer to us. So I pray for the people of Grace Community Church. I pray for the people who are here with us today. That, Lord, you would draw us unto yourself and that we would would enjoy and take full advantage of the gift of the Holy Spirit, of the gift of your presence in prayer. That you are our Father, we are your children, and that you love us, you like us. You want us to be with you. Help us to that end, we pray. Accomplish the miraculous in our midst. All in Christ's name. Amen.